life hurts. I know that's a depressing way to start your Saturday morning, but I guess that's what you get when you come to the biblical counseling workshop. Life hurts. <clears throat> One phrase, two words that describe why there have been hundreds and thousands of people who have walked in the doors of CCEF seeking help. They are seeking help because in some way, in some degree, life hurts. It's all sorts of people, both men and women, spanning all ages, all life stages, different races, socioeconomic statuses, from non-believers even, to faithful church-serving Christians, pastors, missionaries. You realize the diversity of people, and you come to know that struggling and suffering don't discriminate. Even the richest are not immune, nor the most good-looking or seemingly accomplished or well-off. Even the most faith-filled Christians struggle and suffer. Brokenness touches all of our lives in some shape or form. I imagine it's not so different here in this room. I think everyone here can agree on some level that life hurts. Maybe that's not the dominant theme in your life today, but maybe it has been, or maybe it will be. Even if not, I guarantee you, it is a dominant theme for some people who are sitting next to you right now, and many people that you love. Before we jump in any further, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm gonna ask you to pause. Some of you this morning snoozed your alarm clock one too many times and hustled and bustled out to get here on time, maybe still cooling off from some road rage from someone who cut you off. Your mind might be racing, preoccupied, or maybe even half awake. I'm gonna give you a moment to slow down, think about your own life, and locate yourselves before we jump in. Anyone in this room struggling with something today? Anyone hurting today? What burdens or heartaches are you carrying? What disappointments or unfulfilled desires are you living with? What ways are your private life different from what you present outwardly to others? Secret sins. What fears, anxieties, and pressures preoccupy your mind today? What weaknesses and insecurities are you trying to manage and hide? What painful memories of your past are you, that still affect you today? What relationships in your life feel fragile or fractured today? I'm gonna give you a few minutes. I want you to think about that. What's weighing on your heart today? Take a moment and slow down. Let me bring you back in. You know what thought has struck me recently? Not so much the diversity of people who come into CCEF. I'm struck by how our counselees come in. Because I've noticed that my counselees, when they come in, they can be smiley and chipper at the front desk. They crack jokes, they laugh, they make pleasant small talk with our receptionists. They seem great. But then they enter the counseling room and it doesn't take long for the mask to come off. They start to confess to me that they've felt too exhausted to continue living. 
They've sinned too many times. They're stuck. Relationships aren't improving. Their marriage is struggling. Being a parent is overwhelming and confusing. They don't know where their lives are going, how things will work out. Maybe they know on some level that God loves them, but too many disappointments and too many unanswered prayers, and he honestly feels very far away. Shoulders slumped, head down, tears. We talk, we pray, and then at the end of 50 minutes, they stand up and they gather themselves. They wipe their tears away, they walk out of the room, put a smile back on their face, give a friendly wave to the receptionist as they head out to the parking lot and re-enter the rest of their lives. Now there's nothing wrong with this. Sometimes by necessity, that's what you need to do. But it strikes me. It strikes me because sometimes I'm caught thinking if I saw these people at church, the way they present themselves as soon as they step out of the counseling room, I would never guess their lives hurt so badly. I would never know their lives feel like they're falling apart. If I never saw them behind those closed counseling doors, I would never know. I would never know. It makes me wonder, how often does this happen at church, in our friendships and relationships? Life hurts, but how often are we wearing our own masks, hiding behind self-protective walls, putting on smiles, holding pleasant, polite conversations, when behind closed doors we have real struggles, burdens, and doubts that never make it into the light? The things that you started thinking about a few minutes ago, do people know? Do they really know? Why or why not? Because I imagine there may be some of you in this room who are really struggling today, but no one knows. Your outward put-togetherness hides anxiety, insecurities, besetting sins, and scars. Your social media posts show bright smiles, good food, blissful vacations, selfies with flattering Instagram filters. Now I have nothing against filters or Instagram. I'm all about X-Pro2 or Valencia. I think those are the overused ones. But my heart does hurt when I see people trying to use filters for their entire lives, way beyond Instagram. When I see people using filters for the way they engage with other people, and for the way that they engage with God. Trying to crop and edit out all the ugly blemishes, leaving out real parts of themselves, changing the exposure and the color saturation to make life brighter and more colorful than they really are, in order to be liked, accepted, and loved. So anyone in this room today, hiding, filtering, To be fair, we live in a culture that prizes the good glamorous life, the American dream. Struggling is not sexy. Anxiety, insecurity, life crumbling is not sexy. Being attractive, confident, competent, self-sufficient, charismatic, that is what our culture values and esteems. Not only our wider culture, but there's a subtle Christianized version of it. Sometimes we feel that we're unfaithful to God when we struggle. A good Christian should have it all together, at least together enough, whatever arbitrary standard we've set of how much and how deep of struggling is acceptable. 
In our negative emotions, difficult seasons of life, we so often hear, just have more faith. Usually well-intentioned, but we start to feel deficient as Christians by struggling. So what do we do? Life hurts. Our wider culture and sometimes even our church culture says there's no place for real brokenness. What do we do? We resort to masks, smile, and pleasant small talk at church to hide our struggling hearts. When asked for prayer requests, we share the safe ones, traveling mercies, energy and strength for a busy work or school week, healing from your cold or flu. We often choose to stay silent in the sin struggles and suffering that feel particularly shameful. We start to feel like we're leading a double life. We can walk around feeling like a hypocrite or a fraud. We try to fix ourselves, or we try to, to, to distract and numb ourselves away in work, socializing, mindless entertainment, video games, Netflix, etc. No one knows what's happening in our hearts, maybe including ourselves eventually. Church, friendships, and family can feel lonely. And isn't it really hard when we can feel so alone even when we're surrounded by people? What are you hiding today? Is it working for you? Hiding and numbing, is it working? Or is it isolating and exhausting, dulling your soul? Is this what you really want for yourselves, for your life, and for your relationships? Life hurts. It hurts even more when you have to hide and struggle alone. Is there another way? That's the question of the day. Is there another way? Tim Keller says in a famous quote from his marriage book, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. To be loved, quote unquote loved, but not really known, may be comforting, but superficial. There's always the risk of being exposed. Our relationships are contingent on us successfully managing our images and filtering ourselves. But to be known and not loved, our greatest fear, the reason why so many of us hide in the first place. It's not safe to be our struggling, broken selves. That's the common sentiment that we hear. If you really knew me, then you wouldn't love me. Then you discover a third way, and here the conflict between the desire to be known and the desire to be loved meets its resolution because you are both known and loved, fully known, truly loved by God. You realize you don't have to choose one over the other. You realize your hiding actually never worked with God in the first place, and you realize your hiding doesn't need to work with God. He gives us the better way. Psalm 139 says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. 
You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. I wish I could go into details of this passage, um, but I won't. But here are some things that I want to highlight. One, God knows everything about you. Your actions, your words, your thoughts, your emotions, your imagination, your fantasies. The details of your inner and outer life, it's all laid bare before God. He sees it all. And it's you. He knows everything about you. Notice verse 1 doesn't say, you have searched all your people and known all your people. You know when we sit down and when we rise up, you discern our thoughts from afar. Verse 1 says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. This isn't a psalm about God knowing everything in the universe. He does. But this psalm is about the God of the universe knowing you. It's intimate. It's personal. God knows you. His presence and knowing is inescapable. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shul, you are there. Surely the darkness shall cover me, but even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. You cannot escape God, and you cannot escape his knowing. His knowing, no fleeing darkness or hiding will work with him. For some of you, the thought of God knowing everything about you, the thought of being utterly exposed before him, leads to uneasiness at best. But the psalmist declares in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Why does he say that? He gives us glimpses. Verse 18, I awake and I am still with you. Or verses 9 to 10, if I take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The psalmist responds in joy because God's knowing of him is accompanied by his leading and guiding, his care. And so with you, in Christ, in God's inescapable and comprehensive knowing of you, he cares for you, he loves you. That is fully known and truly loved. Let me give you some examples of what this knowing and loving looks like, some illustrations. It means he knows and loves you in your good. This maybe doesn't seem surprising because we're used to being praised and loved for our good, our strengths, gifts, accomplishments. These are usually the things we want to highlight and showcase to other people. They're often the things we use to earn love and approval. But actually, I'm going to take it a step further because God's knowing and loving your good goes deeper than that. Some of you in this room struggle with depression. It's hard to get out of bed, isn't it? Why would you want to if life feels hopeless and hard? You realize that some people actually look forward to starting their day because there's some hope, some incentive, some reward. 
but not you. For you, a new day doesn't feel promising. It feels like another day that you have to survive. I'll never forget a counseling class with Ed Welch, faculty member at CCEF, when he shared something that I'm now paraphrasing. For someone who has nothing to look forward to and so much to dread, for someone who is running out of hope, for someone to choose to get out of bed in the morning and have no other reason but faith in Christ. Dear counselor, if you meet someone like that, please know that you are standing on holy ground. Do you know what he's saying there? You have your view of what the ideal Christian looks like. Maybe you think of your pastor or your pastor's wife or famous celebrity pastors or missionaries, the ones who seem to be doing big and epic things for God. Someone who can barely get out of bed definitely doesn't make the cut for the great hall of faith. But guess what? You, the one whose life seems so bleak, it feels nearly impossible to get out of bed every morning. You who choose to get out of bed every morning anyway, do you know how significant that is? The rest of the world may see you and pronounce on you the verdict failure. You may say that to yourself. God says, beloved, I'm proud of you. Some of you feel like you're limping and crawling spiritually right now, but you're trying. You force feed the Bible to yourself when you muster up the motivation. You make an effort to pray. Maybe, just maybe, it'll help. You drag yourself to church. You're here today. My goodness, you're spending your Saturday morning here today. Your life to the world could look like a complete wreck, but God sees your good. He sees your perseverance, as feeble as it seems. He knows that even though you're stuck, at least you're facing the right direction towards him. And he treasures your small, seemingly pitiful crawls and limps to do right before him. A woman I counseled years ago confessed to me, blurted out to me during the first session that she was struggling to overcome her addiction to pornography and masturbation. And let me just be clear right up from the front, this is a woman's issue too. What was my response? My response was thank you. Because in that moment, her honesty, her confession, her courage and desire to bring her sin from darkness into light, she was my spiritual hero in that moment. In the midst of very real sin, she was facing the right direction towards God, and I aspired to be more like her. God knows you're good. Even the good the whole world and you yourself fail to recognize or appreciate, he declares it precious in his sight. Not only does he know and love you in the good, he knows and loves you in the hard. For you, people may only see your anger and hardness, but they don't see your history. They don't see that violent rage was all you knew growing up at home. That's not always a story. 
but I wouldn't be surprised if it were some of your stories. It doesn't excuse your sin, but it matters to God. For you, people may judge you for acting out sexually. They don't know that for some of you, sexuality was broken when you were sexually abused. They don't know you already feel degraded and worthless. It doesn't excuse your sin, but it matters to God. For you, people recognize you as the helper, the go-to person, the willing volunteer. And I have no doubt you love serving and pouring yourself out for other people. But people don't see sometimes that you need help, too. Brother and sister, do you know God sees the hard in your life? Some of you in this room are hurting, I have no doubt. Some of you are carrying scars and wounds from your childhood, painful memories of rejection, betrayal, and abandonment, loneliness and singleness, loneliness and marriage, underappreciated, overworked at your job or at home, grief and loss that will not heal on this side of heaven. Some of you are bearing the ache of God's deafening silence. Do you know that God knows? Do you know that God sees? Do you know the fake smiles you use to pretend you're okay? The desperate escaping into busyness and mindlessness to convince yourself you're unaffected and fine? The defense mechanisms, the self-protective walls, the compensating. Do you know God can see through all of that? Do you know that some of your frustrated, angry prayers towards God, why aren't you helping me? Why are you not answering my prayers? Don't you see? You are not for me. You must not love me. Do you know that if you're honest with yourself, the deeper cry of your heart is, I'm hurting, God. I'm hurting. I'm confused. Please help me. Do you know that he knows that? I don't know what suffering is in your life today, but I know God does. Keep limping, keep crawling. And let me say from personal experience, when reason fails and faith feels depleted, please know there is hope that God's grip of love on you is stronger than your grip on him. I promise you, he will never leave or forsake you. I promise you, tears and sorrow will not have final say in your life. These are not magical words that miraculously remove the pain in your soul, but I promise you, they're true. So God knows and loves you in the good. He knows and loves you in the hard. He also knows and loves you in the bad. It means he sees way more than your social media highlight reel. It means he sees your sin, some sins that you've committed for the millionth time. 
the indifference and apathy towards others, towards God, towards anyone and anything, actually, that's not yourself. The ugly, judgmental thoughts that would horrify you if they were ever broadcasted. The way you are so prone to chase after other things and leave God behind. Some of you in this room, I'm guessing, are struggling with really ugly, shameful sin. Things that will never show up on your Instagram or Facebook feed. You can't seem to conquer it. You can't seem to want to conquer it. You're used to love that is conditional on your worth and lovability. You're used to earning other people's approval, needing to be good enough to be loved. You're used to people leaving you when you don't measure up. So here you are, unworthy, unlovable, the ugliness and lovelessness of your heart exposed before God for the millionth time. You wait for him to walk away. You expect to hear that you've used up all your second chances and there's no more left for you. You expect him to say, I give up. I'm done with you. And you wouldn't even blame him if he did say that. Then you hear his actual words. These are words from Hosea 11. How can I give you up? In response to sin upon sin upon sin, God says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. God's heart is torn into pieces by your sin in light of his holiness. He hates your sin so deeply. He hates the way it makes him so small in your life and the way it destroys you. He has every reason to turn his back on you, to leave, but his heart of love compels him to stay. Brothers and sisters, God knows you're bad. And he stays. He always stays. J.I. Packer in his famous book, Knowing God. Now this whole book is about us knowing God, but he goes to say, what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. There's unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself, so that no discovery now can quench his determination to bless me. God knows and thinks of you, and his thoughts of you are thoughts of love. His thoughts of you are thoughts to do you good because of Christ. So your ugliest parenting moments, your ugliest marriage moments, 
your selfish, grumbling, irritable, ungrateful moments. Bitterness and unforgiveness that is festering and slowly destroying you. Your most shameful deeds done in the darkness of your room and of your mind. All the times you've thrown God to the wayside to pursue other things and other people. The feeling, unfeeling dullness and apathy you often feel towards God. Every single reason you feel disqualified from his love and grace Maybe you thought you've hidden it well and no one knows. God says, I know. It breaks my heart, but I know. But I'm not disillusioned. And there's nothing you can do that will quench my determination to bless you. God knows you in the hard, in the bad, the good, fully known truly loved. What do we do with all of this? For one, we say to God, thank you. I don't think any other words will do. We say thank you. Maybe we have maybe an inkling more courage to be known by another person because whether or not they respond lovingly, you know there is one who does know and love you. You have somewhere, someone to go to. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Do you know what else we do with this glorious reality that God knows and loves us? We cultivate a desire to really know and really love the people around us, the brother or sister sitting next to us right now. We may have been more apathetic in the past, but we're not content anymore to let other people hide their sins and struggles behind facades because we know how superficial and exhausting that can be. We are on a mission now to not only be more assured that we are known and loved by God, but to know and to love others. So God will shine through our lives. And when we do move towards people, we find ourselves wanting to discover their good, their hard, their bad. We want to know them enough to start to appreciate that they are a complex mixture of all three, just like we are. Though their sins and struggles may not seem to resemble ours, we are undeniably convinced that we are more alike than different, all in need of God's help and grace. Instead of jumping to conclusions, making assumptions, being trite, too quick to offer advice, we find ourselves asking more questions to get to know them. We're quicker to pinpoint the good that they may not be able to see in themselves. We have more compassion for parts of their personality that feel difficult. We are more interested in lovingly walking with them and fighting sin. Judgmentalism, superiority, and pride wither and die when you know that God knows and loves you. Humility, 
patience, and compassion win the day. When we realize God initiates in knowing and loving us, pursuing others is not a burdensome Christian command. It is a joy of our hearts to pursue, to initiate, to know, and to love. So where have we been today? Life hurts. All of us face brokenness in our lives. None of us are immune. Sometimes we resort to hiding, but then we learn that God knows and loves us in the good, the hard, and the bad, and we seek to do the same for others. So how do we do this? Where do we start? By no means comprehensive, but here are some potential first steps for you to consider today. One, at the end of this talk, I'm going to give you um, a few minutes to pray. What's on your heart? What feels hard? Speak those things to God. He knows already, but he wants to hear from you. Number two, consider. Who might you ask to pray for you this week? And I'm not talking about necessarily the usual safe prayer request, but the one that moves you just a little bit further to being more deeply known by another. Number three, consider who you might reach out to this week and offer to pray for them. So in sum, number one, pray. Two, ask for prayer. Three, pray for someone else. Those are my applications for today's talk. Pray, ask for prayer, pray for someone else. There's so much more that can be said, but let me say this. These steps towards knowing and being known may seem straightforward, but expect to encounter obstacles. Any vulnerability requires relational risk. It goes against our culture, our upbringing, our own default tendencies. It completely goes against what the enemy of our soul wants for us. Expect opposition. Expect to feel tempted to choose convenience, selfishness, and safety instead. Expect it to be harder, more uncomfortable, and more awkward than you initially assumed. Expect that people may not be ready to reciprocate. Expect to face your need to grow in wisdom of how, when, and with whom to share with. To move towards being known and knowing others, expect that you may decide that this isn't for you by the time you go home tonight. Actually, I expect that some of you, even at this moment, have already decided. But can I just quickly ask, if you do decide against it, what is the alternative? Because doesn't hiding feel exhausting sometimes? Isn't it hard that church can become the place where you have to pretend? Isn't it true that if you were really honest with yourself, there is a part of you that wants to experience the blessing of being in relationships where you are actually known? In my experience, I have never heard 
I don't think I've ever heard, complaints that there isn't enough small talk or shallowness at church. I've never heard someone complaining that we don't talk about the weather enough at church. But I have heard story after story of mild to deep disappointment from people who craved genuine connection and deeper honesty, but came to church week in and week out and never found what they were looking for. I've met people who eventually left the church because they were too tired to keep playing this game of pretending. They were done with that game. The stakes are too high, brothers and sisters. Life hurts. We can't and we were not meant to do this on our own. The numbing and escaping, being addicted to our phones, none of that is healing our souls. It is an unspeakable blessing to know there are people who will have our backs when our lives get ugly and hard. It is one of the greatest gifts in the world to have people who can remind us that God knows and loves us, loves us and we are safe with him. The stakes are too high for church to be defined primarily by our attempts to manage our self-image and maintain our reputations to one another not when there's so much brokenness here, not when there's so much sin and suffering here. You need each other, brothers and sisters. The invitation stands, baby steps. You don't have to confess your deepest, darkest sins today, but ask for prayer one that's just a little less safe than what you're used to. Ask how you can pray for someone this week. Again, you may find these steps are not natural or convenient or comfortable, but they are courageous. They are good in the truest sense of the word. They do bring you to a deeper sanity in life. They do bring you closer to other people and to God himself. So even if it's awkward and feels like you're swimming upstream and you feel weird, maybe it's worth it. Maybe numbness and hiding, being macho and pretending you have it all together when you don't. Maybe there will reach a point where you'll want more than that, better than that. Not just for your own sake, but for others' sake, for Christ's sake. Maybe to pursue the hard and costly way is actually the very means for you to find the joy and the depth of relationships that will bring your soul life and hope. So maybe we don't do it because it's easy. Maybe we do it because even though it's freakishly hard, we decide it's worth it. Because Jesus is worth it because being an instrument, a vessel for people to experience the love of God through us is worth it. Imagine, this is a quote from Ed Welch here. Imagine an interconnected, interdependent group of people who entrust themselves to each other. You can speak of your pain and someone responds with compassion and prayer. You can speak of your joys 
and someone shares in them with you. You can ask for help with sinful struggles and someone prays with you, offers hope and encouragement from scripture and sticks with you until sin no longer seems to have the upper hand. There is openness, freedom, friendship, bearing burdens together, and giving and receiving wisdom. No trite responses, and Jesus is throughout it all. This is what we want more of. By the way, welcome to the world of biblical counseling. <laughs> I just spoke for nearly an hour at the biblical counseling workshop to give an introduction on biblical counseling, and I didn't even say those words yet, not even once. Some of you might be wondering if you're even in the right place. When you heard biblical counseling, you might have thought of professional counseling, couches, paintings, 50-minute sessions, receptionists. It's not less than that. That's what my life looks like as a counselor. But the ministry of biblical counseling at its core is recognizing that life hurts and God has something to say about it. It's the intersection of our true brokenness and God's unmatchable grace and love. It's about the importance of wise, helpful, honest conversations with other people, sharing, listening, bearing each other's burdens, being known and knowing others, being loved and loving others, encouraging one another to pursue Christ. This is the heart of biblical counseling. The everyday, wise, helpful, Christ-centered, God-exalting conversations among normal people. This is biblical counseling. Welcome. Life hurts, we're tempted to hide, but God knows and loves us, and we now have the privilege to accompany the people that God has entrusted into our care. We are all in process, none of us will do this perfectly. We rely on God's help to carry us forward to deeper love and to deeper wisdom. I have been praying for you. The faculty and staff at CCEF bring their greetings and they are praying for you. We will continue to pray for you. Let's run this race together, fully known, truly loved by God, seeking to know and love others better and better each passing day. Let's pray. God, you know every single person in this room, intimately, personally. You know what's on every single one of our hearts. You know the places where each of us need your grace and your mercy to intervene. You know the places in our heart where your love feels distant and not real. You know the places in our hearts where we're not ready to surrender or submit to you yet, we're still holding on to our sins. You know the places where we are fearful and terrified of what being known looks like. Lord God, Holy Spirit, be at work in all of our hearts 
We are all in process. But this is your calling for us. Help us to believe that this calling is beautiful, that this calling is worth it, that this calling is worth the cost. Be with us, God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.